I'm a hardcore professional something. <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Frontend Masters. They have a terrific lineup of live courses you can attend either online or in person. They also have a terrific backlog of courses you can watch, including JavaScript The Good Parts, Build Web Applications with Node.js, AngularJS In-Depth, and Advanced JavaScript. You can go check them out at frontendmasters.com. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A., Bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the JavaScript Jabber link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash JavaScript Jabber. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support and high performance all backed by the largest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at JavaScriptJabber.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at javascriptjabber.com slash rackspace. This episode is sponsored by Widgmo 5, a brand new generation of JavaScript controls. A pretty amazing line of HTML5 and JavaScript products for enterprise application development in that Widgmo 5 leverages ECMAScript 5 and each control ships with AngularJS directives. Check out the faster, lighter, and more mobile Widgmo 5. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 150 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel we have... Richard Kennard. G'day. Geraint Luff. Geraint, actually, with a hard G. Hello. David Lukey. That sounds about right. It's uh, the <laughs> German is always confusing if you play. Awesome. So those are our guests. We also have A.J. O'Neill. And uh, under some advisement, I was asked to try something different out this week. So instead of my normal catchphrase, I'm going to go with, what's up, y'all? Coming at you live from Provo. <laughs> All right, and I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I just want to throw a quick reminder out there that uh, I just launched the Kickstarter campaign for the Ruby on Rails videos, but the rewards are things that I think all of the people who listen to all the shows are going to be interested in. And you can go check that out at devchat.tv slash Kickstarter. And really what it's about is about supporting the shows. So if you want to give some financial support to the shows, then that's a good way to do it and get something back. So that's all I've got going on. This week, we're going to be talking about what it says on here is form generators. Before the show, we kind of got an idea that it was had a little bit more to do with general UI and things like that. Do you guys want to go into a little bit more about what this is about? Sure, I, I can take that one. Probably I'll, I'll, I'd like to explain what it is by talking about something else first, which is always a strange way to go, but I'll, we'll sort of go around and, and hopefully get back to where we need to be. So there's a technology called an object relational mapper or an ORM that is used quite commonly in a lot of, you know, web developments and, and uh, enterprise developments. And, and, and most sort of platforms offer some kind of ORM, you know, so on, on .NET, you'd have something like the entity framework. In Rails, you've got Active Record and Java EE has things like Hibernate, and, and, and there's quite a few sort of ORM technologies out there. They're, they're pretty popular, I think. And to understand, I suppose, why they're popular, it needs to take a step back to, you know, life before ORM. So before anyone had any kind of object relational mapper, 
you know, if you wanted to write an application that stored something into a database, a relational database in this case, but, um, you know, just general persistence, you'd have this world where first you would write your domain object, your business object code in, in C Sharp or, or Java, or whatever language you were using. And then you would switch over to your, your database environment and you would start you know, creating your uh, SQL schemas. And so, you know, say say if you had a person class that you were trying to model and the person had a first name, well, you'd, you'd create a class called person with a field called first name in, you know, Java or, or .NET or whatever language you're using. And then you'd flip over to your database and you'd create a table schema called person with a field called first name. Then you'd normally have to write a bunch of SQL statements like an insert and update and delete on that person table, each, again, using you know, update first name, delete this. Uh, you might even go further and wrap it in, you know, a bunch of store procedures, which were called, you know, insert person store procedure, and then took a bunch of arguments, you know. And so uh, you're in this world where you're basically repeating this same definition about a person and a first name in multiple places. And and that sucked for, you know, numerous reasons. But one, of course, is just a, a lot of work and a lot of time. But the other is it's a real potential maintenance headache because you're defining the same thing Several times you're defining this. There's a person and he's got a first name in both your business code and also in your SQL schema and also in your SQL statements and also in your store procedures and, and so on and so forth. And so I think one of the things that when this side, one of the uh, good things about an uh, object relational mapper or some way of addressing this is to try and remove that level of duplication and that level of error prone duplication in particular. So when it, when you have a, an object relational mapper, you have this idea where you just define person and first name in one place, and then it takes care of mapping that down to the database. And there's just a, a whole lot of subtle errors that go away and subtle bugs that just go away when you don't have that level of duplication. You know, there's just, there's crazy stuff. Like say, for example, that the, I haven't written a SQL insert statement in a long time now, but uh, the SQL insert statement, like you, you go insert into and then First, you like list off all the fields and then you do value and you list off all the values and you've got to make sure that your values come in the same order as your fields. So, you know, it's rife with, with possibilities there for you accidentally transposing a couple of things and nothing will blow up, right? You won't get any hard errors off that. You'll just start subtly finding data is going into the wrong column in your database. So RMs were designed to solve that class of problem. And I think they've done very well. And certainly nowadays, if you're doing a web app or, or any kind of thing, you'll often use an ORM. I know also, you know, you might adopt a, a, a NoSQL environment as well. And in many ways, something like NoSQL is actually solving the same problem in a different way. Like one of the reasons I think people love NoSQL is that you can just take your objects and shove them in your database and you don't have to worry about mapping them from one type of, you know, a non-relational world into a relational world. There's no you don't have to double declare everything. You can just put the object in and get the object back out again. So in terms of solving that same problem, which is removing the margin for error, then it's, it's worked out, you know, very well. So the ORMs have been very popular, I think, for a couple of reasons. One is they get rid of all the duplication. But the other thing they do that's, that's important, that's often overlooked, I think, is they don't dictate your whole app. So all the ORM is trying to do is get your business objects from your .NET, Java, Ruby code or whatever into your database. It's not saying to you, okay, you have to use Oracle or you have to design your app in a certain way. It's not trying to take over your whole application stack. It's just this little piece that fits between the business objects and the database and solves that particular problem. And I think that's why they've been very popular and why nowadays, you know, you know I mean, you can still write SQL statements by hand when you're doing a web app, but these things are very useful. So we live in this in this nice world where, you know, when you're trying to develop an application, when you're going from the, if you think about your application stack, say you've got your UI at the top and you've got your 
business stuff in the middle and then you've got your database towards the bottom. Going from your business layer to down to your database is a pretty good story. You know, you have a tool in place that will uh, not force your hand, not dictate how you've got to do things, but will also remove all that duplication. And so I think we're all pretty happy with that. And there's not a lot of error-prone stuff in that world anymore. It's very dry, very don't repeat yourself. But then the problem is that, you know, you're in that world and, and that's good, but then you pivot and you look up the stack instead of looking down the stack. So you look up from your business objects up to your UI and suddenly you're back in this world where there's an enormous amount of duplication. So if you've got a person class in your business layer and it's got a first name, then yes, you can map that down to your database. But when you come to start doing UI, you're literally, you know, uh, writing like, you know, if, if it's a web app that you're doing and you happen to use something like Bootstrap, for example, then if you're using the standard sort of Bootstrap approach to how you do a form, then you've got to do a label and you've got to, you know, call it first name and it's got to have a uh, a for attribute that points to a first name control. And then you have to have a control that has got a name of first name and also an ID of first name. And you've got to make sure that it's, it's a, you know, the text box or whatever it is. And you've got to put your length on there. And so suddenly you're, you all this duplication is, is straight back in your face. You know, you, you've, you've got a lot of places where you're typing the same thing again. And if you accidentally type it wrong. So if you have a field and on the screen it's labeled first name, but because you copied and pasted it from somewhere else, you forgot to change the code name of that control and it's actually, you know, the name of the control is surname, then suddenly the user thinks they're typing into one field and, you know, it's going to end up in another field and it's not going to give you a hard error. There's not going to be, nothing's going to blow up and the only way you're going to find that is either through, you know, integration testing or worst case, your user's pointing out that data's going missing. And so there's, there's some things like that. There's some things like, you know, mapping data into the wrong field, but there's far more subtle things like, for example, you know, almost all databases will have a maximum length on a field, but a lot of other technologies won't necessarily have that restriction. So, you know, ultimately that field is going to, that data is going to end up in a database somewhere that's got, you know, say a 30 character limit, but on your front, so on your front end, really you should be putting input type equals text max length equals 30 on every single field that you do. Generally speaking, people don't do that. And the reason they don't do that is because they know that in six months down the track, if you decide to change the length of that field to 50 in the database, then you're going to have to remember to update all your max length attributes on all your fields throughout your UI. And the same with, you know, like minimum and maximum values and all these things. There's all these things that have to stay in sync. And oftentimes people don't, they either they get out of sync over time or people just don't bother putting them in because they're worried that, you know, that something will break and they just kind of hope that the database will catch that error down the track. But there's all these class of problems that come in, mainly to do with the fact that there's just a lot of duplication between the business objects and the, and the UI. So the idea that we, we were sort of discussing is this idea of an OIM, an object interface mapper. So if an ORM goes from the business object down the stack to the database, then an OIM would go from the business object up to the UI. And it would try and solve a similar problem in that, in that it's got to try and remove all that duplication. But also, just like an ORM, you don't want the OIM to try and take over your entire application stack. So the reason I, I, I like to use a term like OIM is I don't like to use a term like, something like a UI generator because there are things out there called UI generators that try and you know, yes, they generate your UI, but they basically try and generate your whole app. You know, you, you give them some business objects like person and address, and they basically try and generate you an entire UI. And, and oftentimes, because they try and be very generic about that, then you basically end up with a, a CRUD, a create, retrieve, update, delete type UI, right? Which is not very usable. 
uh, and not very nice, particularly you know nowadays where where the, the UIs have become you know so much care and attention has gone into them. So they're not really effective for a large class of problems because they're trying to do so much. Uh, whereas something like an OIM, which is just trying to solve this little problem of you've got a piece of your UI, not your whole UI. You know, like if you're developing a game, then maybe your main UI is, is like, I don't know, some kind of man running through a world or something. But at some point in that game, you will pop up some kind of uh, little form or little input, which has a few fields, and you want to collect data there. And that's the bit that you want to be able to sync tightly with the back end because it has to be synced tightly with the back end. There's no benefit to it being out of sync with, you know, the validation that it needs to have. So you have to get that syncing in. So that's where you need an OIM, but you don't want the OIM or the UI generator to try and take over the whole of your uh, application stack because then it just becomes less useful. So basically, if if I understand this, so we have an ORM, and this is something that I, I think most people with a back-end framework are familiar with. I mean, I use Rails, and so, you know, I'm usually using Active Record or something. So the OIM sits on the front end of the web app and maps back to some API that I have on my web application. That's correct. So, well, in similar ways, so the, the, o, so the ORM, at least some of them, actually will generate your SQL schemas and insert select update statements right. for you. So the OIM will actually generate your forms for you. So given your business object, like it knows what fields are in the business object and it knows what order they're in and, you know, a bunch of other metadata that it can pull together to try and understand, you know, lengths and, and minimum maximum values and all this so it knows enough that it can actually generate your form now obviously there's a lot of aesthetics associated with generating a ui and this is where the oim has to be very careful because you know where, where ui generators break down is is they do try and get into the aesthetics and and aesthetics are you know i mean pr- programmers are never particularly i mean <laughs> you, my, my wife chooses my clothes for me you know like you, you don't want to come to me for the aesthetics of your ui but from the mechanics of the ui that, that that's the bit we can actually lock down so what it needs to do is uh lock down the mechanics but be flexible enough with the rest of it so if you want to use you know bootstrap or you want to use a certain type of you want to lay out using divs or tables or you know ul elements or whatever whatever layout you want to do whatever different uh, look you want to do that has to be flexible enough but you just want something that can generate you those parts of the form that have to stay in sync. So, so I've got a, a question about this generation, what, what you mean by that, because I see there's dynamic generation and there's static generation. So like mm-hmm. when I used to use Doctrine, that was static generation. But yeah. Rails seems to be a little bit more dynamic. Like you can have a method that doesn't exist, like find user by ID, and it dynamically generates it. So what are you suggesting? Or are you am- don't care between the two? No, look, I, I personally care. I, I think OIMs can be implemented either way, and they would be useful. Personally, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of static generation. I think the problem with static generation is it looks great at first. Like you click a button and you suddenly get an enormous amount of code out and you think, oh, you know, I've done a good day's work here. But then you actually go and look at the code and oftentimes because it's, you know, synthetically generated code, it's it's not the best quality code. It's very hard to understand. But the worst part of it and the thing that I think the real nub of the problem here is, is duplication of definitions. And so, you know, if you statically generate something, although you have solved that initial generation, you've still got a duplicate definition in your code. And so in six months' time, if you decide to change the type or the length or the order or anything of a particular field, then unless your static generator offers a really nice round-tripping capability, which some of them do, but if you don't, if you have to manually go in and start editing that statically generated code, that's 
you're probably worse off than just doing it by hand. So personally, I'm a big fan of runtime generation. Okay, so I, I definitely understand that point of view. The thing that I've seen that has frustrated me about the dynamic ones is that when you're talking about UI, you, well, you just said we don't want to focus on the UI too much with OIM, right? Yeah. But how am I going to edit the UI that's dynamically generated? Like the first time I want to make a combo box, like the missing element from HTML that everyone implements every time, like yeah. how hard is that going to be to do with an OIM? Yeah, so I just wanted to um, chip in and say that, uh, Rich, you're coming from a, um, a very, uh, the point of view of the programmer. And I tend to come from this abstract, fairly um, useless perspective, having a, a maths background. And for me, it's mostly about uh, not having to give instructions about anything that you haven't made a decision on. So with something like Ruby on Rails, it makes a lot of decisions about, for example, what the URL structure or something should be like. Because there is an obvious way to structure URLs given a certain data structure. You know, and with ORMs, there's an obvious way to structure the database for a given type of data and an obvious way to program the class. And it's given that it should be a no-brainer plugging those two together. Like the general problem we're solving is it's just creating a, an automatic bridge between those two. Uh, so the question of like, you know, static and dynamic or anything else like that, like the principle that we're coming from is that you specify the information you need or the, the shape the information is and then make the obvious choice. So with the UI, if the data that you need is exactly one of the following, then one of these multiple choice selectors might fall out or whatever, or whatever it is that you need, because the idea is that you specify the shape of your data, and then something appears that lets you input that data. And with a UI for, you know, that fits into a website, then the exact styling will, you know, be tweakable to look like everything else, and maybe even like hooks into your bootstrap or possibly other frameworks you're using. But at the end of the day, the thing that we're looking at, as far from my perspective, is to generate something on the screen that matches the underlying uh, shape of the information we're talking about. So how would you know, like, for example, if my list is three items long, radio box or checks box makes sense. If it's 10 items long, a combo box starts to make sense. If it's 100 items long, a tag cloud starts to make sense. Okay, yeah, that's a really good point. And so for me, actually, that kind of question is why discussing sort of UI generation in this kind of sense is is really exciting because the answer is not going to be the same for all environments. So it could be that in, you know, if I'm looking at, you know, a laptop or a desktop, I've got I've got everything. I've got mouse, I've got keyboard. Like it could be that the controls and the way that that data information needs to be entered is different to... I mean, the Apple Watch that just came out has got basically no UI at all, but they could both demand the same shape of information and then the appropriate controls would be different for both. And so my interest is coming from what information do you need and then how do you present that? And that being generated means that you don't have to think about the the exact issues of like inputting various sizes, how many is going to be this, how many is going to be that. It's sort of that someone somewhere... Who, who knows better than you, or at least better than me, you know, makes these uh, these calls, and you can tweak them or whatever. But the, at the end of the day, you say what you want, and then it gives you something appropriate. It's the um, the personal shopper of UIs. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point, AJ. It, it, it is a definite tension between. You know, on one hand, you don't want to have to specify this stuff because if you do, you are potentially introducing duplication, and, and that's where a lot of these maintenance headaches come from. But on the other hand. If you're not specifying it explicitly, then you risk losing 
control and if there's one area where you don't want to lose control it's it's in the appearance of your ui you know it's, it's such a, a personal and and human connected type thing you don't want to risk you know having a, a substandard ui just for the sake yeah, of absolutely agree there. yeah you know? yeah yeah so that that is a definite tension and that's I, probably why this area is is so hard to get right so yeah i think there's there's always room for overrides and tweaks and that kind of thing where you say, oh, you know, if this absolutely has to be a text box instead of a an input, then a single line input, then you know, do you need to tell it that because that's a an actual UI constraint. That's um, right. and that's an, another another good analogy back to an ORM is that ORMs, you know, that they they do map the data for you and they do generate the SQL statements and and schemas for you and they work great a lot of the time, but almost all of them still offer you a way to drop straight back down to native SQL when you want to do something specific and you want to tweak. So that, you know, that, that 20% of the time you still have that full control, but the 80% of the time it's taken away the, the maintenance headaches for you. So an OIM in exactly the same way would need to offer that same path. So that kind of makes me think one pattern that I kind of like is, is almost a hybrid between the static and the dynamic, which is where I, I get confused with when there's too much convention over configuration because I don't know how to change something. But like maybe when you boot it up or you generate it, it generates your JSON config file with all the metadata in it, and then you know where to go to change something and you know what the defaults are, maybe. Well, I agree with Richard's um, concerns about that kind of model, is that if it's generated a file and then you edit that file, then you can only generate it once, by definition. So what you really kind of need is like an override configuration instead of modifying something that was generated once. Well, I was because, I was thinking that it it would be it would generate the defaults, so it like it would print out what the defaults it wants to use are, and you'd be editing that. Not like not that it would be code like, but it would be oh, what's the I forget the word an imperative declaration like. Right. Okay, right. Yeah. yeah, and and I think this is a this is why you know it's a potentially very active research area. This like there's probably two things here. One is that we need to recognize this problem of duplication between. The UI and the business layer is an issue in the same way as it was an issue for ORMs and that something needs to be done. And at the moment, not a lot is being done. Like most new frameworks that come out, you know, even things like Angular, Backbone, that, you know, if you look at the coding examples they offer of how to, you know, our best practice, when it comes to the UI, yes, things like Angular and, and some of the newer technologies, they'll do some kind of data binding for you. Like, so, you know, Angular is probably a bit better than something like jQuery in that you don't have to write so much data binding code, but you still are generate. You still are writing a lot of, you know, input controls and labels, and and you've got to get all these types the same. So the one thing to do is acknowledge that this is the problem. But how you actually go about solving that, I think, is an active area of, of you know, and certainly things like how do you generate it well enough that it's useful without also imposing itself too much on on the final product. Do you do static generation? Do you do runtime generation? These are things that different OIM vendors, for example, can try different approaches with. So now I think it's also worth sort of asking a bit more in detail about sort of when we need this and why we need these. So when I created one of these, you know, I was motivated by the idea that I didn't like writing UI code. You know, I wanted to write stuff that did stuff and I wanted to make an API and then click it. And so, you know, my initial requirements were based around being able to prototype quickly. And then that's actually a different set of requirements from people who want a final product that's like really highly customized and, and melds very much into the rest of the UI. So I think we've got, when we're talking about sort of UI generators and that kind of thing, there's a whole spectrum from debugging tools to like productivity tools for, or, you know, sort of the more designer end and that kind of thing to write things fast. 
Mm. I think certainly you're right there. And particularly with prototyping tools, something like static generation is pretty good because, you know, as you say, AJ, you can then get in and modify it if you need to. You do get an end result. And it's nice to have that initial thing. But, you know, it breaks down a little bit when you start going beyond the prototype because, you know, the static generation is no longer going to hold your hand past that initial generation and, and then you you know you end up with the same problem where you know you decide to add a new field to a, a, an object somewhere and now you have to run around every screen in your app that might be displaying that particular type of data and make sure that you know extra field is added in or that field is changed and uh, like you say Trent, there's a there's a there's a spectrum here you know if you're working in like an enterprise app where there's you know you've got 300 forms then these things are are extremely useful uh, if you're working on a an iPhone game where you've just got a little pop-up input then I think they're still quite useful in the same way that an ORM can be quite useful. Uh, it's probably not as essential. But there's this mindset where wherever you're typing the same thing twice, particularly in two different types of uh, worlds, you know, you're typing one thing in HTML and one thing in JavaScript, and anytime you're trying to express the same concept in two different places, it's very likely that over time you're going to accidentally cut and paste something wrong. From what I was looking at is, you know, what you said that you have two different, like, types of places where you need to change it, right? Because you need your JavaScript, you need your HTML, you need an in-between format that's easier to generate than HTML and JavaScript and easier to change on both ends. I think that was the goal from what I started. So I'm wondering, though, it seems like unlike an ORM that's going to back onto a specific database, those databases kind of define their own protocols. And I, I, let me back up for a second, because I'm totally behind what you're saying about OIM, ORM, you know, with keeping your code dry and encapsulating logic and stuff like that. It makes total sense. But your, your back ends are going to vary. So do these OIMs specify the type of basically the protocol, you know, so they're like, are they specific types of REST or JSON APIs or XML or SOAP or something else? Uh, right. So, so now I suppose you're getting into uh, a particular implementation. So I, I can certainly speak yeah. to my to my own implementation, uh, which is a project called MetaWidget. And so that's an implementation that you know takes a, a particular approach. And the approach that I've taken is so again with an ORM, for example, you'll often get uh, plugins for different database dialects. So you might get your standard ORM, and then you might get a a plugin or driver for Oracle or for you know. Uh, MySQL or some other environment that you're trying to interface with. And so MetaWidget takes a similar approach in that you have this, you know, fairly simple, well-structured pipeline. And then there's plug-in points along that pipeline, the way you plug in different plugins for different use cases. So, for example, the first part of the pipeline is the, you know, where do I get my data from? Uh, for want of a better term, uh, it's called the inspector. So that part of the pipeline is all about where do I get my data from? And you can either plug in an inspector that will read it straight from you know, your JavaScript code, just like a little JSON object that you've got, or you can plug in there something that will pull it in over REST or XML or, or you know, whatever. So the idea is that you have plug-in points for these different use cases and people can swap in different technologies as, as they need to. So again, you're not trying to dictate that because I think this is one of the, the, the dangers that people get into with a grand... Because, you know, we're all programmers and one thing about programmers is, is you go two steps and then you think, oh, I could go... I could go two steps more. And, and so if you give someone a definition of an object, it's very tempting just to try and generate the entire app from that because you could, right? You know roughly where the database is going to be and you know roughly where the UI is going to be. It'll look awful, but you can do it. And so you sort of have to consciously with an OIM not do that and say, okay, I'm going to build the little bit that maps the business to the UI. 
or the domain objects of the UI, but then le- leave everything else pluggable, open-ended. If they want to use REST, they can use REST. If they want to use JSON schema, they can use JSON schema, um, that kind of thing. So the other issue that I see is that sometimes, at least in Rails, you wind up, or outside of Rails, you wind up using Active Record. And so I'm wondering, do these plug nicely into frameworks like Ember or Angular? I'm assuming Backbone's not that terrible because you're essentially just replacing the Backbone model setup. There is a Backbone, uh, what I would call a Backbone OIM project called Backbone Forms already, which tries to do this similar kind of thing. Because even in Backbone, you still have to, out the box, write you know, the HTML code and get it right. So they do have a, um, an equivalent idea. And, and this is, you know, part of the the field is that a lot of people have reinvented this same idea over and over again on a lot of different platforms over the years. A lot of people have looked at building their UI and gone, gee, I'm a programmer, you know, I should be able to use a bit of reflection here and do this stuff programmatically without having to do it all by hand. It's, it's a very common. So there are OIM type tools out there for a lot of different platforms. None of them, or, you know, there's not a big groundswell around this, I don't think, in terms of, you know, being standardized, but a lot of people have written this kind of idea many times over. I think a side effect of that so far is that if you try to, like, make it right for everybody, you end up making it so complicated that you might as well type it all out yourself. Like, there's so much configuration involved that you have to end up, like, configuring it instead of actually writing out the HTML form, and then you look at it and you're like, at least I had that problem. You're like, gee, this is more code than if I actually wrote out that HTML form myself, right? <laughs> so so yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a tough balance. It, look, it is you're a tough balance, but, but I would probably argue that, you know, even in that worst case where the configuration code you have is bordering on the same amount of code you would have written by hand, the fact that you haven't written it by hand means you lose that duplication problem. So even if you have a lot of code, at least it's not code that will subtly break without any warning down the track. You know, at least you've removed that issue of duplicating definitions. Another thing that's interesting for me is, um, well, as I say, I came to this from the, um, the angle that Richard pointed out and I mentioned earlier, which is that, you know, I wrote an API and then decided to do something and, so, and you also mentioned JSON schema earlier, because that's uh, that's definitely where I'm coming from. Because uh, being one of the uh, one of the authors of the uh, the JSON schema format, and so we ended up with this uh, the idea that like actually when things were in flux, that you didn't want a UI at all, and so it was uh, it wasn't even a question of um, you know do we tweak this, do we do we configure this? It's more that when you've got so many so many things changing and you're, you know, in your alpha, alpha, alpha release, then, um, the dynamism is, is, is super important. And I think that's why I'm excited about this form generation or UI generation, whatever name you, you put on it. Cause you, you mentioned, um, like the, this idea of, you know, 300 forms or something in, in, in an enterprise application. And I think that that's kind of the way that things are going because you're going to end up with so many different interfaces and new things that people invent and you might want to be able to systematically interface with all of them and sort of so you end up with these uh this constant stream of, of new things to plug into and uh, creating a ui for each of them is kind of infeasible and as you say you're gonna you're gonna mess up one of them like the more code you write the more mistakes you're going to make the more typing you do so yeah like i think that's why this is so exciting you're right it would be a terrific world if you know next time you, you build your app and then you've got a, a web client and you've got an iPhone app and an Android app and, and, you know, Apple Watch and whatever interfaces they have. And then someone says to you, hey, we need to add a new field 
into our app. Nowadays, that, that could be a massive engineering challenge, right? Because you've got to go around and particularly, potentially three or four different clients and make sure everything's updated correctly. And, all, you know, if all of those clients were using some kind of OIM technology, then all of them would update automatically for you in sync with whatever change you just made on the back end and you wouldn't have this class of problems coming in. Absolutely. So, that, I mean, that's been one of the dreams of various meta formats and so on, is that if you can sufficiently describe the data, I mean, so many people have taken swings at this, that, you know, you think, okay, well, <laughs> obviously this is, you know, one of those uh, traps for programmers, but like the dream is still there <laughs> that if you've got enough information about the data, then you can, you can present the bits of the data you don't understand in a way that humans can still interpret meaningfully and that doesn't look horribly jarring. So I've got a couple of different perspectives on this, but because I came at it first from a, a web design point of view, and then I found that I ended up working in the Internet of Things for ARM, the uh, chip designer. And the message is that everything's going to be connected. Everything's going to have, you know, an API. And then you kind of want to have these UIs for the things around you. And one of the, you know, solutions is this uh, physical web kind of solution, which is you know, Google's physical web thing, where you just... You give them a, a URL and then like they, they make their own interface in HTML or JavaScript or whatever it is. And then you kind of, you leave it alone. But the other thing, if you want it to tie into an interface, then you, instead of describing the UI, you describe what you need and then they assemble a UI that is appropriate for them. And that's very similar to this kind of thing that I think we want to see on websites where you have, you know, Say, I don't know, some, some WordPress plugin or something that you, you want to link into like a Google doc, Google form or I don't know, some new API you've never seen before. And if it's sufficiently described itself, then it can just drop in. You can be like, give me one of these and it will give you something nice at the end of it. And so I think interoperability as well as ease of use is one of the strengths and one of the, the piece of promise that this has. So I'm, I'm looking at this solution and I know you talked a little bit about this already, but I'm, I'm looking at this idea and it seems like there are some apps where you just need like a couple of little JavaScript dealies here or there, you know, some widgets or this or that that are really simple. And, you know, this might even be overkill for. And then on the other end, you've got the fully integrated app that you probably want to pull in Ember or Angular or something on because it's going to give you like some full stack manipulation stuff and you can totally manage uh, your entire experience with it. And this comes in somewhere in between. So how do you make the judgment call to say, you know what, I don't need a framework or, you know, I'm going to use this in conjunction with a framework as opposed to going full Angular or full Ember or whatever? Right. So I guess from my perspective, I don't think this is a halfway thing. I don't think something like Angular does solve this problem at all. As I say, when you're developing an Angular app, if you look at the examples of how to develop an Angular app, they're still very heavy on you have to write out your your UI code by hand. They'll give you a bit of a NG model to help you with a bit of binding, but that's only binding you to one field. It's not binding you to an actual object and all the fields therein. And so something like MetaWidget, which is you know just one implementation of an OIM, comes with plugins for many, many different frameworks. Um, so it had, there's an Angular version of it that appears as an Angular tag. And so instead of saying input type equals text ng model equals person dot first name to map it to that particular field, there's a MetaWidget tag and you do MetaWidget ng model equals person. And so that's the whole tag. And then that tag expands at runtime into being the little form that contains whichever fields in whatever order with the correct types and the correct validations and restrictions on them. 
and then that you can drop in in your Angular app uh, anywhere you like. And so, you know, it, it's as important for Angular as it is. But we also have plugins for you know jQuery Mobile, you know, and and a lot of the Java oh. frameworks out there. So it's still something that I think I haven't seen a, a UI framework yet that has actually tried to handle this problem natively. Most of them kind of walk you up close to it and then just stop. They get to like the data binding stage and maybe they'll have some validation stuff in there, but they'll stop short of actually saying, you know, a large part of this problem is that you're having to write div label input, div label input, you know, over and over again in your code. They're not really trying to address that part of, of, of this issue. Well, web components seems kind of similar and you, you see things like React that do a lot of the, um, I mean, you still, you spell out a lot of the UI, but like, you're, you're talking more about generating the kind of bindings and plugging into. I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying that bindings should go beyond a single field because, right. yes, you yeah, can yeah, bind yeah. a single field, but, but clearly we know more that about this. Like, you're having to do right. person dot first name, person dot surname. Well, why not just do person, you know? And, and so, so web component is, is a good point. So Meta Widget, uh, four recently added web component support. So now, yes, it comes with a, an HTML tag just called Meta Widget. So instead of writing out all your form, all your divs, all your layouts and everything by hand, and some of these layouts, you know, bootstrap and things, there's quite a lot involved in getting all the divs and all the CSS classes and everything correct. And generally speaking, you're, you're cutting and pasting, you know, but there's a lot of stuff you're cutting and pasting. If all of that got collapsed into a single tag, which is, you know, highly configurable and doesn't restrict you and doesn't get in the way, but does generate based on the stuff that has to be in sync. There's no benefit to flexibly allowing you to have the label different from the field it's pointing to. You know, there's having to do that by hand is not offering you anything. All it's offering you is, is a margin for error. You said a good thing. I like the idea of web components because I'm like pretty sure that in the future, right, it doesn't really matter what framework, what it's using. Like you can throw whatever you want on your page and then you can use it. So mm-hmm. we'd have like a form four and then you just give it your JSON schema endpoint or your API endpoint that describes how it's data look in some form. And then it'll just put a form on the page for you, right? And then you can start and like modify it with like CSS and the overrides that like web components allow, but you get your standard form already. And then you just give your web component a callback that says, okay, when the user submits the form, give me all the data that we put in there, right? So it doesn't really matter what framework we're using. We're using web components and we'll get a form for our API endpoint. And if it changes, we'll have it updated automatically on our page. It might not look perfect right away, but that's kind of web components work really well with that idea, I think. And that's yeah. right. I think it's super, super important that, that the uh, OIM or whatever doesn't try and tie itself to a particular technology. Like if you had an ORM that only worked with Oracle's database, it wouldn't be very useful to a lot of people. And so as an OIM, you really need to be open to working with whatever UI technology that people want to adopt. You know, if they want to use Angular, if they want to use jQuery Mobile, if they want to use web components, you know, that shouldn't impact their decision to just remove this problem of duplication between their UI and, and their domain objects. There's also, I, mean, I guess there's the danger if you tie yourself into a particular, you know, if, you, if you're using an OIM, then yeah, you can change the other frameworks underneath it, but um, you're then, you're, you're kind of tied to that OIM as well. You know, you've got this, um, you, you have to make yep. that decision fairly on. And so I think, so if I could try and go back and answer Chuck's question from a while ago, which is like, how do you choose when to use different bits and how do you transition between them? Is that? Yeah, I think that's, um, that's definitely another uh, angle on what I was asking. 
Yeah, so like, I think my answer to that would be the whole point of this UI generation, form generation, OAM, whatever, is that, and I already say this, um, it shouldn't be your problem unless it's your problem. So that, um, that's a judgment call made for, you know, up to the people who make the UI. And so it's kind of, it's, it's decoupling that someone should, in theory, be able to create this UI. And, uh, you know, as, as David says, maybe it's a, a JSON schema and then some, some styling. Or, you know, or maybe it's a framework, maybe it's meta widget, maybe it's, you know, whatever. So, but the, the point is that like, you have the different people working on different things. One person's busy kind of vaguely saying what it should look like. And then someone else should be able to swap out how it works and say, Oh no, we're, we're going with Angular. And then you plug in your different, um, your OAM backend or whatever it is. And so like, I mean, that kind of progressive replacement of bits of your UI is, I think, the essential bit. So, I mean, the the thing that I was I would end up making, which is a project called Jasonary, was um the coolest use of it I found is actually a Chrome plugin where you whenever you view a JSON API which has been annotated with JSON schema, suddenly it gets buttons all over it and like forms and kind of kind of stuff. So like you point at a JSON API in your browser and it's suddenly interactable with. And I think that's pretty exciting, but that's not really usable. But the point is you as a backend person should, you know, be able to use this API and not care about the UI. And then there's someone at, you know, a different area of your group who's making forms and making other stuff and making judgment calls about, okay, hey, we've mocked up a, you know, that this prototype, but half the buttons don't work. I've decided I've, you know, we're going to go with React or we're going to go with web components or whatever it is. And then they can make that choice. And if you've got this system where the, the UI is in general generated by the information requirements, Rather than specific hooks from any given point, then you, you end up with this, this flexibility. And so as a backend person, I shouldn't have to care what the judgment call is or what we're using at the front. You know, even as a, a mid-level person, you know, someone writing schemas or, or config files for display. And, you know, then the front end person can sort of then liaise between the models that have been described and the designer's vision using whatever they like and whatever OIM backends, as Richard's calling them. And so I think that's, that's kind of my answer is that like, it's undefined. It's a judgment call, but that's kind of the point is that it's not a judgment call that you have to care about unless you're the person making it. So I have a hard time seeing that we'll realistically get to a point where we could have something that abstracts between front end frameworks. Cause when I look at the back end, it's like, well, I've got Oracle and I've got MySQL and Postgres and SQLite and a couple different things. And, and although, you know, every single one of them escapes differently, one uses backticks, one uses single quotes, one uses double quotes, you know, like there are some really annoying differences, but the SQL syntax and the way it works is the same. When we're looking at things like React and Angular, both React and Angular claim to have built a better browser. They don't claim to be you know, working as a layer on top of the browser, they're saying we are a browser that abstracts your browser away. So it's kind of like it's going the reverse direction from like browser DOM implementations being like SQL, where they're kind of the same, but kind of a lot different, kind of annoying to completely different things that aren't similar at all. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, it is, it is a, a different problem. There's a lot more variables, I think, in going up to the UI than going down to the database. But at the same time, the, the, the feeling that you have in your gut is while you're typing out 
whether you're using Angular or React or whatever framework you're using, while you're busy typing out your UI, you know in your gut that a lot of what you're typing is basically boilerplate code and has to be correct. And so although it's not clear how you automate that, whether, you know, runtime generated or statically generated, and, and there's obviously problems and challenges in doing that, you know in your gut it is something that could really do with being better because at the moment you are typing stuff that you know if you mistype this, then either you're going to get a subtle error or you're going to get no error at all, and one day something will blow up. Yeah, so I mean, so, I totally agree that it should be better. It's just just trying to get people to agree on how we should do Angular. You know, just if we were trying yeah. to get people to agree, like, we should do Angular this way, and the API for UIs for Angular should be this way, that alone I see as just a huge challenge. I mean, look at Yeoman Generator versus Angular Seed versus, you know, these other patterns. Yes, and I, I think it's important to to really restrict what you're trying to do here, and that, that's what I was sort of getting at before, is if you try and generate too much, you do lose uh, feasibility, I suppose. Um, if you, it, I think it's possible to generate just those pieces of HTML that we know are pretty rigidly defined. But if I could just go back to what Geraint uh, was saying, it made an excellent point. One of the things that you get from the decoupling of this UI generation type layer is, yes, you lose a lot of the duplication, but one of the things that we've seen with MetaWidget is the choice of control now gets left up to this decoupled place. So, for example, if, if you have it in your app somewhere where someone has to enter in a color, uh, and initially, you know, with Angular out the box or whatever you, you framework you're using out the box, the best you can do there is a text box where they type in an RGB number or code. And so that's how you develop your app initially, and that, that's probably fine um, for the first version. But then down the track, someone comes along with a color picker component. Now, if you've manually gone and put all your screens together, you might think that color component's great, but you have to then go around all your screens and swap out the text box for the color component on everywhere that you've, you've accepted that input. Uh, whereas yeah, if, I... you, if you've decoupled that choice, then clearly it's, it's a one-line change in the OIM to say, hey, anytime you're trying to render something that needs to take a color, instead of spitting out a text box, why don't you spit out this fancy new color picker control that we've just got, and suddenly, you know, everything in your app's updated. So I think that that's, um, that's sort of an abstraction of the... Uh, or sorry, the concern raised earlier is kind of an abstraction of that, that it's not just um, that when you want to switch out a particular UI component, like if you make a major choice like, oh, we're going to use React instead of Angular, or even, you know, have a big tip about how you use Angular... You have this, this, you know, oh, do you go through and replace all your different, you know, you know, can you just swap out a back end that like, you know, seamlessly works all of these? And as far as I can see, maybe like, maybe there's going to be some grand form generator that wins out over everything else. And maybe there's not, maybe we're going to end up with, you know, there's going to be a, a form generator for, you know, several form generators for like for Angular and you, you know, one eventually wins and then there's going to be like a form generator for React or something in various plugins. But like we're still kind of pursuing this, um, this idea that none of that should be the concern of the person who's writing the data models. That like you should have this faith that you can add a field and then add something to a model somewhere. And then whatever framework that the, you know, the, the person above you in the abstraction chain is or the UI chain is, is using that it will be able to accommodate this stuff. And so you don't have this this starting point where, you know, you start out from this horrible hard-coded stuff and then you go, oh, okay, let's write a whole lot of schemas for this particular ORM. That you end up writing, 
you write these models and maybe you have to like batch convert the models to something else or you know something horrible because we're never going to do away with all these problems but like maybe if you make a huge change from angular to react then the pain should be fairly minimal if both systems have a form generator that work off some abstracted model of the shape of the data because you have the more you've abstracted about the nature of the data and the nature of the requirements that the form has then the less you have to rewrite when you change stuff similar to the less have to you have to rewrite when you just change what a color picker looks like you know so even at the large scale when you're changing you know oims or changing something fundamental which means that you have to like treat your oim slightly differently or call it or you know I don't know what the model is. Maybe you get incremental updates, so you get like progress change events as opposed to a submit button. Whatever it is, that if there is that sort of this ubiquitous, if everyone has this abstraction, and this is a common way to approach this kind of uh, information display and input, then you waste less effort, even when making quite big changes. Does that kind of uh, answer anyone's? I, I, I think it, I think it definitely eases the pain. I know, for example, going from Bootstrap two to Bootstrap three. For a lot of people, was was a lot of rework, right? They've changed a lot of the CSS. They've changed a lot of the, how the your, your forms and stuff were structured. Not not a great deal, but subtly, but enough that you have to go and revisit all your code and update everything. And in some ways, that was Bootstrap's problem, not yours. You know, so if if Bootstrap had a plugin for some kind of OIM that generated their particular type of CSS and div structure based on how they liked it then when they went from two to three, rather than having everyone else go and tweak and update their code, they could have just updated their little OIM plugin. So instead of spitting out Bootstrap 2 CSS and divs, it's spitting out Bootstrap 3. And so, you know, the, the amount of rework that everyone else has to, that it gets inflicted on everyone else is is, mm. is that much mm. less pain. So I guess the other question I have is, what examples are there out there? I mean, you guys have talked about a few of the examples of OIMs out there. Are there certain ones that you should consider? Or should you write your own? Well, okay, so I think a few of us, at least, are going to be fairly biased on the basis that we, uh, we'd we like to plug them. But, like, I think on the basis of my conclusion that, like, I don't know whether there is necessarily going to be one that works equally well on uh, React and Angular and Web Components or whatever, because you're going to end up with this, uh, like, the, the fundamental the different paradigms of, you know, how they do updates or whatever it is. Like, maybe you can do that, and that's a difficult problem. But I think actually the fact, just evangelizing this idea that it's a, a good idea, that if you've got your dynamic information requirements, that you should have a dynamically assembled UI, is a useful model to be thinking about. I mean, in terms of uh, different options, there's uh, the the JSON schema site, which is the, the project I'm involved in has a set of implementations and so there are a few different uh examples for like ui generation one of them is meta widget which is uh richard's one of them is json area which is mine there's one called json editor and i'm absolutely sure that there are several which are not on the list and so from my point of view i think actually keeping innovating is is pretty important because i don't think we've necessarily i don't feel this is a a field which has got a clear winner yet we haven't i mean there is no clear winner for web frameworks we're still arguing about react and then someone like you know releases a new one that's like oh this one's only in like four kilobytes or what you know we haven't solved that and we might never solve this other one as well but like pick an existing one write a new one if you don't you know if it sounds like fun and you don't need it to work i think just the same as all of the coding but like as a pattern i think form generation ui generation based on dynamic requirements is a cool thing to be pursuing Yes, that's absolutely correct. I, I think, you know, I, I would speak for David here as, as well as myself in that 
when you build these tools, you're building them to solve a particular problem that you've got. If someone's already written that tool to solve that particular problem, you'd be more than happy to use that. But as it was at the time, you know, so, so on an ongoing basis, it, it doesn't really bother me which tool becomes a successful, you know, OIM or, or whatever, but as long as someone's got that tool. What I see at the moment, though, is, is oftentimes when new front-end frameworks and stuff come out, there's just nothing in this area. And so immediately you're back to writing all these duplicate definitions out and, and you know, the, the pain all comes back again and, and you wish that this was a more commonly accepted pattern that everyone was trying to get behind. Very nice. Are, are there any other aspects of this that we should talk about? I mean, one one other that comes to mind just as I'm asking is testing. Sure, I, I, I can briefly talk to that. It's, um, I think the testing story is, is excellent when you come to an OIM because of the fact that it can generate you some really nice UI code. So oftentimes when you're doing testing, particularly integration testing, the main thing you need are sensible IDs on things so that your jQuery selectors or your, your Angular integration tests can, you know, select these various fields in ways that, you know, are, are predictable. And so oftentimes when you're writing your test, you're, you're finding yourself going, oh, hang on, I forgot to name this field, or I gave it an ID that I got my uppercase, lowercase mixed up, or, or it's not sensible the way I want it. So I'm, now I'm switching between writing my tests and going back and fixing my app a little bit so that it's more testable uh, and that kind of thing. Because the, the UI code that you write by hand is not necessarily you know, pristine, whereas when it's, it's generated, then you can do a much nicer job on all the IDs and all the naming of everything so that when you come to do your uh, integration testing, the, the thing that you're testing against is already, you know, pristine. And you are taking out that layer. Like, if the generator is good enough, right? you could almost be sure, well, not be sure, but you don't have to test every single field all the time just because you know it'll be tied to your back end. Uh, with what Richard is saying, you'd end up having to test every single field and making sure that, like, end-to-end, actually, it, it shows up in the database as well. And with that, we can actually make sure that in the normal case, it will work versus in the normal case, it will break because we made a typo or something. So I think that makes it a little a little more safe to actually work with. Very nice. All right. Well, I don't think I have any other questions. Do you, AJ? Not at this time. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks then. AJ, do you have some picks for us? Yes, I do. So as many of you are well aware... Majora's Mask 3DS came out, and it is good. And you should buy it while you can, because the same thing that happened to Ocarina of Time, or worse, is going to happen to Majora's Mask. Right now, if you want to get Ocarina of Time, you got to pay like 80 90 bucks to get a copy used. So, if you're on the fence about it, just go ahead and get one. It's a fun game, and I'm glad to be able to play it. And there's a hint system in it so that it's not impossibly difficult this time. All right. I'm going to pick a couple of books. Uh, the first one is 80-20 Marketing by Perry Marshall. I listened to it on Audible. It's about six hours long on Audible. I always listen at, like, double speed or something. So, you know, so I listened to it in, like, three hours or so. It was so good. Definitely something I'm going to go back and... Reread the other book that I've I've listened to was uh, the Wizard of Earthsea, and this is an older fantasy book, uh, just a terrific fun book to read. Uh, so I'm going to pick that. And then the last book that I've been reading or that I've read lately is called Conform. If you're in the U.S. and you're concerned about the education system, regardless, so it's written by Glenn Beck, and I know that he's kind of a controversial in some circles. <laughs> we'll just put it that way. 
But, you know, regardless of which side of the aisle you're on, I've been checking some of the stuff that he points out in the book and finding that uh, a, a lot more of it is true than I really want to be. I actually tend to uh, agree probably 70% of the time with Glenn. So that it's just really frustrating to see where things are at. So if you're interested in that, uh, you can go check it out. It's called Conform. And finally, I'm reading another book by Glenn now, but this one's just stories from U.S. history. Um, and it's really interesting to read, and it's called uh, Miracles and Massacres. And the stories that I've read so far from the Revolutionary War, you know, there's no political slant on it. It's just stuff that happened. So anyway, the history is really interesting to me. The situation politically is also very interesting to me. Anyway, so those are my picks. Richard, what are your picks? I do have one. Um, I went to a, a one of these uh, hackathon-type weekends recently where they, they lock you in and you sleep on the floor. And it was a room full of probably 200 people and, you know, all technology people and and. You know, I'm a technology person, and I guess I'm kind of used to being like, if I was in a room full of cricket fans, I wouldn't think that I would have much to add to that conversation. But if I'm in a room full of technology people, I kind of expect to be able to, you know, offer something of value. And it was a real eye-opener to me that probably a third of the people in that room, so dozens of people in that room, were doing something which I was completely opaque to me. I had no value in at all, which was 3D modeling. So some people were doing it because they were developing games and some people were doing it because they were doing VR. There was a lot of uh, 3D printing people. There were some CGI type people. But it occurs to me that 3D modeling as a, a skill is one of these real sort of gateway or is becoming a real gateway kind of thing that I wonder for, for my kids, it's going to be important to them to have that core skill, which will then open up a lot of different careers for them. So I'm I'm now trying to get into that. So I'm using a software called Blender, which is a 3D modeling package. And I've also got a, uh, I'll do a shout out to a, a 3D printer company called ME3D. So ME3D.com.au. And I got a 3D printer off them. So I'm trying to, trying to skill up in an area that was, is completely new to me. All right. David, what are your picks? I have two. Uh, one, I like to listen to music when I work. And Top 40s uh, is not my thing, and I can only recommend to everybody. I have found my best music lately on Bandcamp. I'm just going to post the link in there. There's a lot of underground music in there and like new things that it's really awesome to discover new things. And their share model is actually pretty fantastic as well. I ended up, even if the music is also on iTunes, I ended up going with Bandcamp because they only charge 15% instead of 30 that iTunes does. So it uh, helps the artists a lot and people are very like grateful. And they probably have the best like pricing model as well when it comes to like publishing music as like a band that's can't make you know iTunes or something. And the other thing, I'm going to share some books too. I'm currently reading the Zones of Thought series by Werner Vinch. He's a professor for mathematics, computer science, and also one of my favorite sci-fi authors now. Um, he wrote this series in the universe that has AI in it and alien life forms and was probably the best sci-fi I've ever read. And I did like all of the ones before and this was part of it. So I can only recommend that series. It's pretty fantastic. Awesome. Great. Uh, did I say yeah. it right this time? It's close enough, close yeah. Enough. Um, so, I think, well, I have to 
given a kind of obligatory plug to Citizen Four. I know everyone's heard of it by now because it won, you know, it it won everything. But um, yeah, it's it's amazing. Everyone should go and see it um, at some point. In terms of music, I've been quite into Solar Fields. It's you know amazing kind of trance like stuff, very relaxing and kind of hypnotic. I also came across some interesting uh, JavaScript stuff, which is again kind of recreational for me because it's not really to do with what I do day to day. But um, someone wrote an implementation of OpenPGP in JavaScript, so OpenPGP.js, and Forge, which is an implementation of TLS in JavaScript. So you can do an entire TLS stack browser side, which is just one of those things where I'm like, why did you do that? But it's great that you did. And I think that's it for recommendations from me. All right. Well, thank you guys for coming and talking about this. It's it's really interesting to see where it fits into the uh, development ecosystem and just how it can be used to simplify our code. Pleasure. Thanks. All right. Well, let's wrap up this show. We'll catch you all next week. Have you noticed that a lot of developers always land the job they interview for? Are you worried that someone else just landed your dream job? John Sanmez can show you how to do this with the course, How to Market Yourself as a Software Developer. Go to devcareerboost.com and sign up using the code JJABBER to get $100 off. This episode is sponsored by React Week. React Week is the first week-long workshop dedicated entirely to learning how to build applications in React.js. Because React is just the B in MVC, you'll also learn how to build full applications around React with the Flux architecture, React Router, Webpack, and Firebase. Don't miss this opportunity to learn React.js from Ryan Florence, one of the industry's leading React developers. If you can't make it out to Utah, they're also offering a React Week online ticket. Go check it out at reactweek.com. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you wish you could be part of the discussion on JavaScript Jabber? Do you have a burning question for one of our guests? Now you can join the action at our membership forum. You can sign up at javascriptjabber.com slash jabber, and there you can join discussions with the regular panelists and our guests.